We hope everybody enjoyed our last episode with Cody Royal. Before we introduce today's guest, we want to mention our partnership with clothing company Capo. The meaning behind the brand runs much deeper. The northwest of England clothing brands strive to provide premium, aesthetic fitting and quality clothing at affordable prices. Check out their products at www.capouk.com and on Instagram at Capo UK. Now for today's guest, here is a snippet of what to expect. To be qualified, you have to live what you're doing. To be qualified, that's qualification. You can, you can. I've got qualifications. Everyone's got qualifications, but you have to live it, live it over a period of time, and that, then you become qualified because you're qualified because you've made a load of mistakes, and that gives you the qualified not to make mistakes again. Or sometimes you can make mistakes again because it's the nature of the beast that you are. We're excited to welcome Tony Colbert onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Tony is the former first team coach at Arsenal, working alongside Arsene Wenger for 20 years. His time at Arsenal coincided with the most successful period in the club's history, including being part of that famous Invincibles team. Tony now works with FIFA in the FIFA Training Centre as their football functional development specialist, creating sessions with an emphasis on individual key technical qualities. Tony, welcome and thank you for coming on to the Golders podcast today. My pleasure. So first question that we always ask our guests, Goldust to us is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Difficult question. Been thinking about it a little bit. Um, but gold dust to me, after a long, long time working hard in the game and having very little time off, to me, it's a few days walking along the coastal paths with my wife and then having a nice meal, a couple of glasses of wine in the evening and doing the same thing the next day and the next day and the next day. And that's gold dust to me. Yeah. Well, at special moments, we've got to cherish those. Absolutely. So for me, that is that, it's a very simple. A very simple. I'm a simple person with things like that. So it's the uh, having a bit of time with no pressure and no nothing to to think about except for the enjoyment of the fresh air, some oxygen in your lungs, a nice glass of wine, and a nice nice bit of steak at the end of the evening as well. Uh, well, simplicity is definitely the genius. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be many other special moments in your life that will unravel as we, we go through this podcast. Uh, but if we if you look at your past history, you became first-team fitness coach at Arsenal when Arsene Wenger was manager at the club. Yeah. Can you share with us that, your backstory of how that came about? Yeah, uh, fairly straightforward. Um, I was working in the fitness industry for a number of years, uh, working um, as a, a manager of a number of gyms, which I managed. I've done the educational program for the gyms as well to teach the instructors about health and fitness, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, along the way, I came into contact with a son of an Arsenal legend. And that was um, George Armstrong was the, the legend of um, Arsenal. And his son managed to become um, quite um, friendly with him when I was working in one of the facilities that I was managing uh, as the gym manager. 
And he, down the line, he, he said to me, look, there's a, a position going at Arsenal. And um, I contacted George Armstrong. He said, I'll um, mention to Arsene Wenger about yourself. He said, stick your CV in. I'll give you a little word up as well, a little heads up, sorry, or a little mention and see what happens. So I sent in a CV um, and um, I got an interview among many other people and uh, Arsene was just impressed with what I had to say. As simple as that. So he was was very um, particular about what he wanted and he said, after about six weeks after the interview, I got a, a phone call from him to say, I want you to join us. I'm going to give you a three months trial to prove yourself because this was a long time ago. So it was that, the infancy of the fitness coaches going into football. I might have been one of the first five or six that was in the, the Premier League anyway, for sure. And he said, I'll give you three months to um, prove yourself. And three months later, he uh, said, yep, I'm happy with what you're doing. Um, I think we can, we've can. got some, some work to do together in, in the future. That'd be great. So uh, that's how it started. But in that first three months, I must say, I worked 49 days consecutive one period without a single day off. And that was hard because I was travelling. At the, at the time, I was near the Kings Lynn area. So I was travelling down to London, Colney and back, which was 100 miles there and 100 miles back. And I had to do that for 49 days because I wouldn't take a day off because I wanted to impress the manager, you know, to make sure that um, I secured the, the long-term contract. And, yeah, it was a it was a hard time. And sometimes I would stop on the, on the way just past Cambridge and I fell asleep a couple of times in my car. My missus was ringing me up. She couldn't get, get me to answer it. And I get, didn't get home to one o'clock in the morning one day and then I'd get up and go straight back out again. So it was hard. But I proved myself and uh, the manager took me on full-time. In that story itself, Tony, there's a few things in there. I think the first one is you never really know who's watching. You've got yourself in a position where you've met somebody who at the time you might have not not known who it was, led to obviously what you talked about then. So I think you never know who's watching. You don't. And I've um, that's one of the things. I've got two sons, a 34-year-old and a 32-year-old, and I say to the same things to them that – if you do the best you possibly can and go even beyond that, people will notice what you're doing. And you might not hear from them for a long time. You get a little mention and then you make your own luck in life by doing that, by being like that, by being one step ahead of everyone else, you know? So I was good at what I'd done. It, the George Armstrong's um, son uh, acknowledged that and said to his father, I think uh, Tony could be good for football club. And um, Arson obviously agreed. You know, mm. so what I got there was the foot and door to get the interview. My, I don't did my CV stand out from anyone else's? Probably not. But when I go, when I go, when I go to the interview, obviously I did stand out to everyone else because that's why he gave me the job. Along with that, Tony, I mean, you mentioned in the initial question about what Goldust is to you now. The reality is, you worked in elite environments, and at the time for quite a long period was the probably the most elite environment in England. And you mentioned about how many days you worked consecutively and what it took for you to get to where you got to and the commitment that it took. I think that's quite a few lessons in there. I'll tell tell another thing as well. And this is in all honesty, I spent 20 years at Arsenal football club and I never had one single day off sick in 20 years. 
you started working at Arsenal um, 98, obviously when Arsenal yeah. was in there. And it's fair to say he transformed the team sure. on the pitch, mm-hmm. but more so he set up revolutionising his players' lives away from the field by implementing cutting-edge training regimes and dietary systems. And you played a key role in this. Can you explain what type of work was taking place in that period? Yeah, I mean, you, you say I played a key role. I think I, to start with, I, I played uh, a complementary role. It was very much um, Arsene's baby, the way he wanted to develop the professionalism in the game. And I think the word the word professionalism is what embodies what he was all about. I came in just I came in after him, so I didn't see what it was like there before. But from talking with numerous players and conversations with people around football, I think um, what he done is he he took it one step further with the commitment to doing everything you can to optimise the performance of the players. So we would, for example, from the physical, technical side of things, we would prioritise how we trained we would do everything off the stopwatch. We would do everything with sets and reps. We would have the correct time periods between repetitions, between uh, between sets of um, intensity. So I think what happened there is that the, the players that were there at the time took him serious because he was so serious about everything and he was so methodical about everything. And I was sort of like part of a number of other people in the in the team at the time, including the coaches and the physios, that were all all part of that process that was developing over a few years. I mean, when I came in, they were already just been just become champions. So it was, you know, it was a it was a big learning curve for me from the environment that I come through into a football environment. And um, there was a lot of big stars, World Cup winners on my first season. So it was an education in itself the how to pitch yourself into that team. So I'd done it slowly. I slowly increased the way I de- demanded from what I demanded from the players over a period of time. For, for Arsenal, it was just the professionalism. And then things started evolving from that. Because they start listening to players, start listening to you once they believe you. And it was the little things they do. I mean, people, I often hear the way he changed the way that the diets were, you know, the dietary side of things. Um, Subtle changes, the way the pre-matches meals were, the time between pre-match and the time between the the, the games, the the guidelines, what to eat. But you can't make them players do any of that unless they buy into it. So over a period of time, they did start to buy into it. He also had some good professionals at the club when he came to the club, really good professionals. And he got them on side very quickly. And then he brought in... The foreign players, which were good young players with loads of quality. So it was like a perfect storm of events that happened and it just rolled on from that. Team spirit became strong. You could feel it. You could feel the spirit in the team. You talked about the buy-in. I'm sure there's loads of reasons to why, but what do you think were the big ones in terms of getting players to buy in? What did he do to get that? Well, first and foremost, you got to say he wanted the team to play. Players love to play. They don't like to sort of set up not to play. They want to play. And he encouraged them to play. Everything was about expressing themselves and playing football. That was part of it. And then secondly, he brought people in like myself, like some of the specialists that we had at the club to see the players, talk individually with the players, to get the older players to 
increased their careers to a longer period of time, which they did. Um, you know, a lot of them were finishing at 35, 36 instead of your 32s, 33-year-olds at the time. And I think it's hard <laughs> to pinpoint one thing apart from organisation, methodical, professionalism, and he lived it himself. He was an example as well, you know. He was there at the training ground before everyone else. He was there. He was the, the last one out, the first one there. He was totally committed to everything he'd done. And that was a breath of fresh air, I suppose, at, at that period of time. Maybe, you know, you could look at maybe Alex Ferguson and say in the same light at the same period of time. But apart from that, I don't know who was who was as professional as them, as them two individuals in the game. So I, I looked and learned what was going on at the club. It was good. He brought, brought, brought good players to the club as well. He would say 90% of, I don't know if he, he I'm sure he'd be happy for me to quote this, 90% of the success is the players you bring to the club. You do currently work with Arsenal in a different role, a different capacity, yeah, yeah. which we'll, we'll, we'll sort of go into later. But in addition to actually helping the physical performance plan aligned to the coaching philosophy of the manager at that time, yeah. which was Arsenal. How were you able to do that, Tony? What specifically were you doing to actually align with both the, the players' needs on the physical aspect and the playing philosophy of Arsene Wenger? Well, it was all about speed, technique, speed, technique, power. It was Our game was all about that, developing players to be able to repeat, repeat sprint and to have good endurance. But what, what I was doing is I was trying to change the way that the, what you call a traditional type physical training maybe had been, had been in football previous to that, which was the, you know, the runs, the longer runs, the boring exercises. And we'd have it as short and sharp and then introducing the ball into the physical work as well. And of course, the intensity in the, possession type exercises would be very high and it would be specific, say two or three minute intervals, same recovery period. So we would prioritize the intensity and develop the red line and lift the red line. So we became fitter, but football fitness, not what you may have seen before when people running up and down the terraces and all that back in the seventies and eighties and even in the nineties, the you know, um, long runs in the forest, et cetera, et cetera. We'd have a little bit of that early days pre-season, but then it would all be specific to football. So making sure that everything is is in a line with speed and movement in the game. You've talked about it and touched on it a little bit, Tony. So the, the fitness stuff, a lot of it was with the ball and you developed lots of activities where the ball was pivotal to every session. Where and how did you come up with those sessions? It didn't really happen overnight. You know, first of all, the first season or so, most of my work was without without the ball. But and we was using you know the hurdles, ladders, poles, and all that to do the agility stuff. But I looked at it and I thought to myself, this could be used for any sport. It, it could be hockey, it could be rugby, it could be any sport that you want to, cricket even. You could implement these exercises with any sport because the actual tool of the trade is not involved. So, and I looked at things like, remember the little 
the little hurdle ladders that they, we used to work with years ago. And you watch if you if you do a video on, of players using them, you'll see one thing is in common with all of them: they're all looking down at the ground at their feet. And I thought that's not inducive of uh, lifting the head up to see what you're doing on a football field. So I tried to develop exercises that work for quick feet, but all involving the football. And that's um, how it progressed. That's not to say we didn't use some of the hurdle work and explosive work without the ball, because to the day I left Arsenal, we still used a bit of that work in some circumstances. But it was it was always, always about prioritising the training so it had the combination of technique and physique linking together, always, if possible. There was times when you couldn't, bringing players back from injury early doors when they can't use the ball, you're, you can't use it, you've got to do, do the next best thing, and that's running, interval running, some longer runs with players that have been out for a long time. But by and large, the majority of our training was with the ball, at speed, at tempo, and with looking at various other avenues of well as well, awareness habits, technical balance, trying to get players to use both feet, et cetera, et cetera. So we would religiously work on that week in and week in, day in and day out. The fact that I was working with the injured players as well, and I'd work with the injured players that were ready to train. And a lot of the time in the afternoons, uh, they were, you know, back on the fields, could use the ball. I'd work with them before the ball. Borrow Pimrak, who was first team coach, and he would he would come out, and he would say to me, uh, "I'll come out and help you." So then he gave me some little ideas about how we could get the ball involved outside. So it sort of evolved from that, and then over a period of time, all I would do, if possible, with the injured players, is use the ball at every opportunity I could. So and they would love that as well because that gave them the opportunity to come back to the team with good coordination especially if they've been out for a while, you know. That wouldn't be like a few touches of the ball, which um, I would say can be uh, a little bit circusy, sort of like used as a prop. It wasn't used as a prop where you would do a, a doggy, come back, pass to the coach and back, doggy, come back, head the ball and come back, those type of exercises. It was all relative to the movements, to turning and playing quickly forward, one and two touch, to moving inside, playing and to the left, turning up to the right, play out to the left, all the sort of things that you do in the game, receiving, turning, laying it off, making a little run behind, the type of things that we would do as a, as a very offensive team as well. And that, I think, gave a little bit of flavour um, to the players when they come back to um, full training. They were sharp technically as well for anyone wanting to observe your work of these technical activation sessions that you've devised on the fifa website is that yeah, correct yeah the fifa training center.com and it's under the um, heading of um, training perspectives and you've got technical activation and speed technical coordination so i've got two presently working on two project projects to Put to, to the world some of the stuff I was doing at Arsenal Football Club. And it was Arsenal's idea for me to come and do that because he feels that they would be of the benefit to the educational programme for specifically young players um, in the parts of the world that uh, the coaching may be not as as proficient as it is in the the major countries. Although, having watched the World Cup, I think the coaching is pretty good everywhere at the moment. Agreed. Now, you mentioned about the physical 
demands and the physical returns from doing these uh, technical activation sessions. You've also mentioned about some of the technical bits. What about the psychological returns for players, either when they've been coming back from an injury or even players that have just maintained a, a frequency of playing on a consistent basis? Yeah, so you're, what you're trying, uh, if, if I hear you right, you're trying to say, what is it like for a long-term a player to come back from a long-term injury? How they, how they cope psychologically? Uh, f- uh, why they're out? Yeah, yeah, well, both. So you got players that they're doing these activation sessions, whether they've been injured or not. Yeah, the sorry to talk across you there. The activation sessions, the, the technical activation was basically our our sort of specific way of warming up, we would, for a long period of time, you see in the game that you spend about 15, 18, 15, 18 minutes without the ball warming up, progressively getting more speed and more intensity into it, just like you, but again, that you could do that in any specific sport. What we tried to do is from a very early into after two or three minutes, three or four minutes, maybe we would get the ball out and use my technical activation session. So the technical activation was a per se, a warm up technique, uh, technical warm up, which became more intense as it went on. And then we were ready to play the actual intensity sessions that I used to do with them with the ball were, you know, the right to improve fitness and speed and power and, and, and stamina, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, psychologically, when a player has been out long term, and they're coming back, they do really crave the use of the football. And the one thing for sure, before they come back into the team, they would use they would use the ball more than the players that were in the team. So they would have more contact with the football. Obviously, what I didn't give them is decision-making because decision-making is not a premise of a return to play. Uh, it is a return, uh, sorry, uh, return to training. So, but I'd have them up in every other way that they, they would be coordinated, they would be fit, and they would be ready to come back into the team with um, good technique and good physique as well. So, and as far as um, to answer your question, players that weren't playing regular, I've done quite a lot of work with that because you know what it's like with the overs, the overs that um, are in the side. It's very difficult, especially when you're. You're training after matches and all you can do with them basically is run because you haven't got any other opportunity to do anything else. I would try to still even try to, at home, we would always use the ball in our sessions after the game as well. So that was important that they got that. They used to go through the motion a little bit because, as you know, a lot of players, that when they're not playing, they're in a a different psychological state to the players that are are playing. I'm not talking about players that are just missing a couple of games because they're being rested, but the ones that can't, can't quite get into the team. So that's a very hard area to actually to get what I could say quality training from the players. It really depends what the spirit is like in the team. If the spirit's good, everyone's buying their waiting to buy their time. If it isn't good, then it becomes a little bit harder to to manage that. It aligns to another question in relation to that, to be honest, because uh, you mentioned uh, around the social element to to one degree. But relationship building in is crucial for any team success, sure. as you as you know. And can you can you share any experiences how your methods uh, have actually developed that social cohesion? All I would say is that having been in 
a number of of the teams that evolved over the, the periods that one thing that stands out more than anything for me is the team spirit is everything. And uh, I'm sure most people would agree with that. And if you know when you're in a, a team that's got the c- correct spirit to, to go on to win things, I'm not talking about winning a cup. I think you can win a cup. Um, you have to have spirit, but the collective spirit required to win the premiership or to win a, a league that you're in is is immense. And I think that's where the social cohesion comes in. Again, it's that rolling ball. If you start to win, players start to become more, I would say, closer to each other because they've got that that feeling that they're doing something together. So I think, um, how would my methods have, have helped that? I don't really, I don't really know, apart from the fact that players love to use the football. So part of that, I would say that some of the exercises I was doing with them, they used to all go into their own little groups doing them, and they used to all challenge challenge each other to be to have quality. And if the drill broke down, for example, it may be a group of five players. The thing that my exercise is the ball never stopped moving, so I'd continuously move into the. If the exercises are not the you know the, I'm not re, I didn't reinvent a wheel at all, but I just modified a f- few things that were done at the time and made sure the ball was always used. There was balanced left and right technique, and that all of the the nuances of the game, the scanning, the using of the right, the appropriate foot for each um, um, exercise, et cetera, et cetera, was adhered to. And that the tempo was high and it was tried to, we tried to work at game tempo. So everything was quick and, and sharp. So the players that were performing these type of exercises in the, in the times, they would challenge each other to be at a high level. And if it didn't, if it broke down, they would, they, you know, they would go have a go at each other. So that was, was that I think produces again good team spirit. So they were, they were challenging each other to be better. You can see it with Arsenal Football Club at the moment. I've watched them vigorously since I left the club, and at the moment you can see they've got some spirit there, real spirit. It's sort of evolving over a period of time, and they're all buying into whatever's happening there. And that's how that's how it, it happens when we were there at certain periods. With that being said, obviously, I think the recruitment side of it, getting, you talked about it, strong characters, people that want to win. You get mm. you get the right people on the bus and you put the right people in the right seats. You can move generally in the right direction. Now, that cohesion element, you talk about winning and when you win, people get closer because there's that, spirit and you feel like you can you, you got success now challenging one really what happens when you're not winning so when the losing when groups were losing what was done how did things change just and adapt to help the group by not panicking was the main major thing and that's what again uh, Arsene Wenger was uh, an absolute uh, Gemstone and not panicking. He never panicked. He, he and he got some criticism at the end. Wrong, I feel wrongly, but he never once panicked. Kept a cool head. He didn't. Um, he didn't publicly crucify any of his players. I mean, as soon as the manager does that, they've gone. They've lost the dressing room. In, in my opinion, humble opinion. Um, and little things like that. And he kept saying, that, you know, this is the way we want to play. This is the way we're going to play. We we want to play football. We want to be expressive. Uh, he didn't blame anyone. He didn't um, 
stat out. He didn't put someone out in front of the crowd and blame blame them in training or anything like that. So we just kept a cool head. And um, if you we had, I can remember we had a, a runs where we'd lost three games on the trot. But most important one thing was you didn't lose the next game, and then you got a little foothold there again, and start the confidence starts coming back. I think. I might be biased, but I think wrongly so. I think when you look at history, we think we've had 20 years of continuous Champions League football. And I think the majority, by and two, were in the second stages, the group stages. I mean, who wouldn't buy that if you could sign up for that? You know, And this was, again, I'm not blowing Arsenal's trumpet. This was, how can I say, with very little resources from after with the time when uh, we went into the Emirates because unlike many clubs, we had to actually pay for that stadium. Well, I think that a big part of it, that element of success. So success is obviously relative. When when Arsene Wenger came in and he brought his staff in with him, the amount of success was quite phenomenal. I mean, I think it's 19 years now since the Invincibles, which is obviously the last time Arsenal won the league. But you yeah. talked about then club moved into the Emirates and things change, finances change, and they still did well as a as a collective. You still did well, and then when he left, it was then very evident, I think, that he was doing a really good job with what he was given because the club went through a slump for quite a few few years, and obviously now over over the last year or so with Arteta being in and the time that he's been given. The back, well, I say they're back to where they were, but they're having success. But I think it showed how how good the staff. The foundations at the club are are good. They're solid because they're they're it's a philosophy that's been built up over many years. And the people at the club now are Arteta, Edu. They're Arsenal people, so they you know they obviously Arteta went to Manchester City as a coach, but he played. He was the captain of the club, so he knows the values of the club. And Edu was. They're part of the Vincible squad, so he knows the values of the club. So that goes back to Arsene again and to the environment that he he developed over those years. You know, doesn't get enough credit that he deserves. You know, so because if you look at the and the football we played as well, we played beautiful football. For me, that I, I love football when two teams want to play, i.e., like the World Cup final, for example. When when France were forced into to come in, you know, having a right go, and that becomes it becomes beautiful then. But over them twenty years, we played, tried to win every game, just like Ferguson did at Manchester United, and that's why they were the two standout teams over that period for me, in my small humble opinion. Talking about your opinion, because we, you know, we spoke very highly of Arsene Wenger here quite a few times, Tony. Yeah, but in regards to Tony Colbert. What does the modern fitness coach, what is that role nowadays, in your opinion? Difficult. It's changed. See, my role evolved from being a fitness coach per se. And I was, for the last year, I was actually employed as a first, as first, team, as a first team coach. But they moved me away from completely from the fitness side to concentrate on just the technical stuff that I was doing. So I, I think I ended up really over the last 10 years that I was there in a very niche area where I was not either one or the other. So I was lost somewhere between not, not a coach because that the tactical side wasn't my, wasn't my element. And purely the fitness because I was sort of somewhere between the two. So my role, what I was doing, I would do is I would look how 
when the coaches would be looking at the way we set up, the way we defend, the way we attack, I would be looking at the way we move, how players combine their passing, how the patterns, you know, the patterns, how the patterns evolve. And I would get those, write them down, look at them. How can I put those into exercises that we could replicate in all sorts of training that we do with a physical emphasis on it as well, whether it's speed, whether it's endurance, but in the patterns of the game. So that's where my role was. So the modern fitness coach would be something totally different to that because most of them won't have, won't have license to use the football. I was lucky. Arsene gave me license to use the ball and then encouraged me to develop the, the exercises and the the training methods that I, I, I developed. And that's one of the reasons why he... He's brought me to FIFA to as um, a consultant to work on the development of the methods that I introduced and developed at Arsenal. When you mention the patterns, uh, yeah. I've got a, an idea of what you're referring to, but for those that are unsure what a pattern is, what specifically do you mean? Okay, so if I if, if just a simple pattern would be like a player turns on the on the half turn gives a little diagonal pass and the diagonal pass is laid back into his path and then he switches it out to the opposite side. So just that little movement pattern. So turning on the half, giving to the right, going inside to the left, getting a return ball, playing to the left. And then you can make that pattern work with five or six players, re repeat it over and over. And it ingrains those little movements that they become automatic. They become like any good driver that goes around a roundabout will make a decision before he reaches the roundabout. Well before. That they're going to go across or they're not because they, they've got those, it's ingrained, it's automatic. You don't think about changing your gear. I know none, none of us use gears anymore, maybe. But you don't think, oh, I'm in first, I'm in second. You just do it automatically. You look in the mirror, you do that. I, I've never learned to type in my life. I can't I can't tell you where a Q, W, E, R, T, Y, et cetera is, but I can close my eyes and type without getting anything wrong. And that's after 20 years of religiously just repeating. So them little patterns that I developed, that's one, it gives us a little bit of fluency. Arsenal would give me credit for that. It, it gave us a little bit of fluency in our movement, in, in our speed of movement with the ball, because we done things automatically. So yeah, that's what the patterns are. And I would, that's what I would look at. That's how I, that, and that was my area to work on patterns of movement, passing patterns, coordination patterns, and then put those patterns, in, label those into a physical area, whether it's speed, endurance. The endurance would be, for example, five or six players repeating over and over a pattern where it's like eight to 10 minute block of continuous movement. So they get the endurance side or it's little short bursts, 10 or 15 seconds when it's for speed with finishing, without finishing, you know, just just little little parts of the, of the game that maybe not... In training, a player might only touch the ball, what, 30 or 40 times in a training session. Yeah, you know, when I was doing my exercise, they'd touch the ball maybe 10 times a minute for some at some periods, you know. So you get that contact with the ball much better than you, you would do if you don't. You, I mean, football is a sport where they don't use the actual the tool of the trade as much as like in tennis, in any racket sport. It's hundreds and hundreds, but it's not, you know, and the repetition would give us a little bit of something, you know. Sorry, so going back to the modern fitness coach, I think that, in my opinion, they're policemen of intensity nowadays because they use the GPS and the GPS has become king. And I think G GPS is dictating to what 
you actually do in the game rather than any I think the the creativity is a little bit lacking and I see that everyone's working off the same hymn sheet and everyone's working up the same plans and the ones who do it the best obviously are doing well but I think the red line is a little bit lower because everyone's worried about injury which is rightly so but the squads are very big nowadays and they're we're full of players that have been, what I would say, brought up well in the academies with their athletic development. So they've got good protection against injury from that p- perspective. So I would say they're policemen of, t- of intensity and that they have a complementary side to the game and that they look at the workloads and give the information to the coaches and to the managers what they should be doing. And I think it works quite well, although... I think the game is a little bit robotic at the moment and I don't see that many that much creativity in the game personally. That's again, that is my humble opinion. But being in the game for, for 20 odd years on a daily basis, uh, I don't see the, the creativity in midfield anymore. Uh, so I think there's a little bit of roboticness in the game at the moment, in my opinion. I'm just going to jump back before I ask the next question. So you talked about the activities that you did and were you mentioned in, in a game how little a player touches a ball and then in what you do, obviously, how much they do. I think the big part of that is that they master a skill or a movement uh, or a pass, whatever it is, that when the moment comes in a game, they're able to execute yeah. in that Auto- moment. Automatically without thinking about it, yeah. I think that's what you would say. It's re- repetition creates... You know, more perfection. And again, going back to Arson, Arson was all about the pass. The pass is the king for him. The pass was everything. Turning to play forwards and finding a good pass was everything because that speed it speeds the game up. So you would say that perhaps the work, the work that we do we were doing was was all about trying to speed the game up and speed the quick the quickness of the game, the quickness of the players. The ball moves quicker than anything else. And I think that's what our game was all about, the ball moving quickly. And to the player in the correct, even the, how the player received the ball, was it in the future of the player's movement? Arsenal would what watch him in training. And if the ball was played just behind a fraction, he'd go, ah, oh, not happy with that. And he's right, he was right. He wanted everything in the in the, the right pass to speed the game up. Creates time. Defenders don't get opportunity to defend if the if the passing is good. Going back to the fitness coach part, so you talked about the fitness coach being or the, the modern day fitness coach being the policeman. Um policeman yeah. of intensity. Yeah, what what lets a fitness coach know how much to push the players? And I think I mean I, I experienced this. So you you have an intense yeah. session and there's always that red line, as you call it, of do we keep pushing them to raise the bar or are we pushing them beyond that red line where they're now susceptible to injury? Well, that's the, the holy grail, isn't it? And, um, and the modern game. Listen, I've been out of the game really for about four years. So in the, on the day-to-day side of things. So things um, have moved on in the the amount of information that the um the performance team are getting in front of their eyes. So there's things to, to, to say that there, there may be the possibility that injury is going to occur. 
there's um, protocols that the medical teams will implement post-training to see if recovery is taking place. You've got the distances that they're travelling, the, the body, the stress, dynamic stress loads that the players are under, which are all monitored on the GPS, the intensity level, the sprints, the changes of, of direction. They're all going to be... Um, they're all going to be presented to the performance team and then the performance team make the decisions on what they see. Where is the red line? I was always, and I might have been a bit too, too aggressive, who knows, but I was always, the red line for me was the the strongest people, the strongest players in the club, not the weakest. Um, once you, in my opinion, once you start the intensity of training and the... Um, once you start bringing the level down to the least able, then I think you have a problem to win anything. But um, yeah, it's a difficult one. What is the red line? Where is the red line going to be? How many games should a player play before they're arrested? Uh, you know, what minutes should they be coming off? Um, uh, is it good to rest them before the next game? Or are they going to be fresher for the next game? There's so many questions to be asked there. And after, after 20 years in the game, I can give you the answer. I can tell you what I would do, but I couldn't give it, whether it would be the correct answer, I wouldn't know for sure. No one no one knows that at the moment. No one knows that. All I would say that the big clubs have a lot of players to choose and they have the chance to rotate quite regular. But rotation, too much rotation is not good for the, for the players as well because they come out of the groove. They lose. You, you know, when a player's play 20-odd games on the trot and they're playing out of their world, it's a big person who's going to say to the manager, I think you should rest him tomorrow. So I don't have to answer your question at all. Well, it certainly does on a number of levels. It's sharing lived experience because you can have all the qualifications on, on the planet, but they're only qualifications. Qualifications, it, to be qualified, you have to live what you're doing. To be qualified, that's qualification. You can, you can. I've got qualifications. Everyone's got qualifications, but you have to live it, live it over a period of time, and that, then you become qualified because you're qualified because you've made a load of mistakes, and that gives you the qualified not to make mistakes again. Or sometimes you can make mistakes again because it's the nature of the beast that you are. Because if you, I've made, I've made mistakes, many mistakes. You know, I've, I've had players that have come back from thigh injuries and on the, the day before they're going back into full training the fire's gone with me during a, during a 1v1 with me where well, I used to do a lot of 1v1s with the players as well because I liked them to do 1v1s before they went back into training and I'd use myself as the almost like the battering ram to be to challenge and tackle etc etc and then boom they go and had I had not done that on the day before they go back into training, they might have been available for the next Saturday and we might have won a game with some big players would have come out. But at the end of the day, for the, for every now and again that that happened, you'd have 10 players that would go back and they'd be really sharp and ready to go back into, into, into the full team. Can your activation sessions be applied to all ages and all levels of the game, Tony? Yeah, I mean, at the, at the FIFA Training Centre, I've... We have uh, thirteen-year-olds doing them. Twelve, twelve, thirteen-year-olds, fourteen-year-olds. I think the exercises can be can be implemented from as early as the age of eight to ten in a sort of modified, uh, modified way. And I'll say that because watching young, watching when I was at a half time at the Emirates or wherever, 
I'd watch the junior gunners go out and they're all seven-year-olds going out and they're playing at halftime. And you watch, I used to watch them quite closely, you know, for the five or 10 minutes that I had to watch. And um, they all, fun, fun thing I saw was that everyone just chased the ball. So there was, it was all fun and it's lovely, but they just chased the ball. So I think what you open football for that age group is absolutely essential because that's when they like, that's where they create, become creative and they get all the ingredients of the flavour of the game. But there also needs to be a little bit of structure to what they're doing, i.e. and the little exercises that are doing the technical activation are structured to help them learn to take a ball on their right foot, pass it across to the left and play out with the left foot. There's not many, there's a number of players that even at the highest level can't do that. They have to take it on the right, move it on the right and play it with the right or or conversely with the left. So the little things that that are in place in these exercises that are on the website are designed to create those neural pathways that they become, like I was talking about the typing, it becomes second nature. I'm not saying everyone has got a great left foot, but every player should be able to move the ball from the right to left to play a decent 20, 30 yard, yard pass with the, with the left foot and conversely left foot player with the right foot. Also, the exercises are all about learning to scan at an early age. And I've had conversations with a number of people saying maybe it's a bit too young, eight or nine, to get them learning to scan because they don't really really know what they're doing, what they're scanning for. But it's the habit of doing it. And I will go, I said to the person that I was speaking, I won't say who, but this person I had the conversation with, I said, my mum learned me to cross the road very young. I learned to scan then. I scanned left, I scanned right, and I scanned left again to cross the road. And had I not, I'd been run over many times. So you can learn a youngster to do something which is appropriate. And so the scanning at an early age, which is part and parcel of the exercises that I developed for the website, the scanning is just an implement, just a tool to have a quick look to see. And if you develop that nature over a period of five or six years, it becomes second nature. Some of the best scanners, or the best scanner I've ever seen at our club was Cesc Fabregas. He had that, that was a good, that was God given. It, it, it just was in him. But a lot of players don't have that. And I think if you can help them to develop those pathways, technical balance, good awareness habits, and quick feet with the football, then you provide them with the tools to express themselves in their own way. Whereas you can see players at a high level, brilliant football players, but they have limited technical horizon because they can't use one foot or the other and seriously can't use it. So that's part and parcel of it. It's just giving early foundation. It's not the be all and everything. It's, it's simple, but a simple implement of 10 or 15 minutes of coordinated repetition of neural pathways and development at an early age, which creates those patterns that help them to express themselves in their technique on the field at a later age. And it's the same as the athletic development in the physical side. It's the learning of the neural pathways for the for the athleticism, the ankle, knee, and hip joints all moving in coordination with power and with pace, developing the pathways, and which they're doing very well now in the athletic athletic development and pathways at football clubs. And that's why the players are coming through a bit more robust than they were ten or fifteen years ago. The younger players. So, final question, Tony. If you had to write down a priority list that would help coaches understand the demands and needs of the modern game, what would be on your list? Well, first and foremost, you've got to know manage what you're doing. So you've got to know 
what what workload you're um, giving to the player. So I think in the highest level, everyone's bought into the GPS. So they're all bought into that. So they've got that information. So that's that's an absolute priority. Secondly, is to actually prioritise your time so your training is efficient, so you're not doing things that are not really making a difference to your performance. So that's very important as well. You've got to know your players, got to learn to know their, their um, individual capacities and their individual weaknesses. I'm talking from the, the – you're talking about the, the physical side, I assume, here. So, And just then try to challenge them to, to actually improve – so don't mediocrity is something that I don't like. It's t- taking them to the, another level and pushing them a little bit. Challenge them to develop to their physical capacity. Challenge them to develop their technical capacity. So that's a, a essential. Um, and it's it's a little bit of trial by error as well. To be honest with you, Tony, thank you ever so much. It's been enlightening. It's been enjoyable, and. I'm sure many listeners will find this useful and extremely beneficial from the gold nuggets that you shared with us during this past hour or so. So on behalf of uh, David and myself and the listeners, thanks ever so much for, for creating this space to be with us. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Thank you as well. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at the Gold Dust Coach. Thank you, everybody.